isn't it good to have Katie Gale back in the house? Come on. <laughs> I don't say that just because Katie's my boss, our executive pastor of ministry. Truly, we've been like a, a rudderless sailboat without her on Sundays and especially throughout the week. So, so glad you're back. It's true. My name is David. I'm the worship pastor here. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 24. Uh, we've, been, we've been going through the book of Exodus, and uh, we'll get there in just a second. I want to tell you, um, by way of opening, uh, about uh, an actor named Christian Bale, who lost 62 pounds uh, in 2004 to prepare to play the lead role in a movie called The Machinist. I don't recommend the movie to you. <laughs> it's really weird. Uh, but he... It, he lost 62 pounds. He was 182 pounds, dropped down to 120. Uh, for reference, I'm 160, and depending on my posture, Christian Bale is three or four inches taller than me. 120 pounds. <clears throat> he did this, by the way, by consuming just 200 calories a day. He ate an apple, a tin of tuna, <laughs> and drank black coffee, of course. And I'm assuming water, I guess. It didn't say that. In 2004. And then in 2005, he would be uh, the lead in a little movie called Batman Begins. So this 120-pound man from 2004 to 2005 is going to become 220 pounds Batman. <laughs> he did this, by the way, by eating everything in sight, especially pies, and working out for three hours a day, neither of which I think would be recommended by medical experts, gaining 100 pounds in a year and working for three hours, working out for three hours a day. And I can imagine his agent or whoever his people are, you know, that kind of help him run his life, looking at him as he's finished this role in The Machinist in 2004, 120 pounds, and just thinking, how is this guy going to become that guy? <laughs> How is he going to become Batman, Bruce Wayne? And as we're looking at the people of Israel in Exodus 24, I, I think we're faced with a similar question. God has said some pretty profound, enormous things about the people of Israel. They are going to be his people. Out of all the nations of the earth, they are his treasured possession. He even gives them this role as being priests to the nations. And we're looking at Israel like, that group? Like, those guys? This, these escaped prisoners uh, who are in the middle of a desert, they don't have any real resources except for God. They're completely dependent upon him. How are they going to be made into the people of God? How is God going to make for himself a people from these people? I think part of why you and I are here today is not so much that we're really curious about Christian Bale, maybe you are, or the people of Israel specifically, but you're wondering, is God going to do something with me? Is God going to do something about me? How is it that I am part of God's people? How will God make for himself a people out of us? Let's start with Israel in Exodus 24. How will God make himself a people? He's begun it. This isn't the beginning of God's covenant 
with Israel. He's appeared to Abraham in Genesis 12 and says to an old man with no children, I'm going to make you a nation. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This nation is now in bondage in Egypt in the first part of Exodus. And God delivers them from slavery. This becomes an enormous marker on God's people. They are those who have been redeemed from slavery. They've been freed. And now we come to Mount Sinai. And a lot of Bibles, the heading is the covenant confirmed. Remember, we've been talking about God's relationship with Israel as a sort of a wedding. God is wedding himself to his people. And in Exodus 24, we kind of have the wedding ceremony. And it actually kind of starts with a rehearsal. <laughs> Let's look at the first four verses. And as we come to God's word, Father, we just ask that you would enable us to hear you, enable us to see you, Jesus, that we may rightly understand and then rightly live and order our lives around you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to pick up in verse 1 of Exodus 24, and I'll say from Mark Young's encouragement to insert the name Yahweh when we come to the Lord. I'm going to read it in that way oftentimes. So then Yahweh said to Moses, come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach Yahweh. The others must not come near And the people may not come up with him. And when Moses went and told the people all Yahweh's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything that he has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything Yahweh had said. Can you kind of see how they're getting themselves in order before this ceremony is going to take place the next morning? You guys are going to stand here. You stand over there. This is what you're going to say. Don't say that. That sort of thing. They're getting arranged. They're getting themselves in order for this ceremony that's going to happen the next morning. It's interesting. We see this, uh, this kind of tiered uh, approach to God. God tells Moses, Aaron, to come up with the elders and worship at a distance. The people may not come up, but they're going to stay at the foot of the mountain. It seems as though they're pretty content to do this because at the end of Exodus 19, they actually say to Moses, please don't let God speak to us anymore. (laughs) You guys talk and then Moses, you come tell us what he said. So the people I think are happily staying down at the foot of the mountain. The elders, 70 men along with Aaron and two of his sons and Moses go up halfway and then Moses alone with the assistance of Joshua is going to go all the way up the mountain into the presence of God. If you're interested in how this is going to play out, through the rest of the Old Testament, uh, it's the same way, the same kind of principle in the tabernacle, which becomes kind of a mobile Mount Sinai. The people worship God outside the tent. The Levites, the priestly tribe of Israel, go inside to worship and serve the Lord. And then one man, once a year, the high priest, goes into the presence of God in the holiest place. This is also true of the temple years later. So we see Israel agrees to the terms. Everything that Yahweh has said, we will do. How is God going to make these people his people? Let's keep reading. Second half of verse 4, which was just read. Moses gets, early, gets up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain where the people are. 
set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood, put it in bowls. He'll use this later. The other half, he splashes against the altar. This is very odd to us as we approach this text. What is God going to do? How are the people of God being formed? It's through worship, which always involves sacrifice, especially in the Old Testament. Moses built an altar. Anytime we see an altar in the Old Testament, this is signifying worship. And then we have these sacrifices, these offerings, a burnt offering and a fellowship offering. The burnt offering, which is the most common type of offering that we see in the Old Testament, fleshed out in Leviticus 1. This signifies worship, praise, thanksgiving, and atonement. At one mint. There's something that's happening with these people so that they can be at one in the presence of God at a distance still. Then the fellowship offering, which does exactly what it suggests. Sometimes it's also called a peace offering. It takes two parties and brings them together. It creates harmony and peace, restoration of relationships. And there's actually a meal associated with this offering. You eat the offering after you have made it. Okay, the splashing of blood on the altar. This is very odd, but it signifies two significant things. First... The offering has been accepted by Yahweh. And it's showing that he is the one who is first and foremost, not only in making this covenant with the people, but in keeping it and upholding it. So God is making for himself a people from these people through worship, through sacrifice. Next, God is making them his people as they hear his word and receive it. Verse 7 Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, and they responded, we will do everything that Yahweh has said, we will obey. And then this act signifies what they have just agreed to. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all of these words. This sprinkling is very odd to us, especially in a time and a culture where we feel, um, well, some of us might be a little bit weak-kneed when it comes to blood, and I'll group myself into that category. I've passed out multiple times when I've had blood drawn. Don't look. Don't do it. And now I, um, can you imagine, (laughs) I have to hold my kids. I have four little ones, and as they get their blood drawn, I'm in the chair, you know, holding them (laughs) The poor nurses have to tend to me as much as they do my two-year-old. It's very odd uh, what Moses does, but it signifies two important things. They have been cleansed from their iniquity, and they are being ordained as the people of God. We're going to unpack that in just a second, but before we do, these words of Israel, we will do everything that Yahweh has says, we will obey Do you chuckle at that a little bit when we think about Israel? (laughs) We're going to do it. If you've read eight more chapters in the book of Exodus, if you've read any of the scriptures beyond the book of Exodus, or really even anything that's come before this, it's painfully obvious that Israel does not make good on their part of the commitment. (laughs) 
They forsake the Lord. They turn away from him. They turn away from his law. And it's not like just some of the more obscure, you know, ox goring, and if you forget to cover up a hole and somebody falls into it, they will violate the greatest commandment, the first commandment, and the second, as they make a golden image representing a calf and turn away from God to worship it in just a few chapters. However... I'm not preaching Exodus 32. (laughs) Somebody else is going to do that in a couple of weeks. And for right now, I'm going to invite us, for some of us, this is easier than others, to withhold judgment, to suspend judgment on Israel for their words. And I want to ask you a question. Do they respond rightly or wrongly in this ceremony, in this commitment? God has, so to speak, put himself out there to the people. He said, I will be your God. You will be my people You will be my treasure. I will be a husband to you, the language that we see later on in Scripture. And the people say, yes, you will be our God. We will be your people. We will obey. Right response or wrong response? It's totally the right response. Can you imagine coming to a wedding where the minister, it goes into what's called the declaration of consent at the very beginning and turns to the bride and says, Will you have this man to be your husband? Will you love him, honor him, cherish him, be faithful to him, forsaking all others as long as you both shall live? If so, say, I will. And her response is, I I probably can't do that. (laughs) Or when it comes to the vows, the man, you know, maybe he's written his own for this ceremony. He pulls out his crumpled piece of paper and starts reading to his soon-to-be bride and says, uh... I'm going to put myself ahead of you most of the time. I don't think I can do this. (laughs) It'd be ridiculous, yeah? Like it would make no sense. We are actually made to, to make and keep significant promises and vows. And that desire for faithfulness, that desire for us to come to the Lord and say, I want to be faithful, I want to obey the Lord, is a good thing. It is the right response of the people. He is our God. We will have him. Then Moses sprinkles the blood. I'll read again what he says. This is the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all of these words. This is crazy what's happening. Very odd to us, but very significant in the life of the people of God. Not only is God cleansing him, but he is ordaining them to be his priests. The next time that we're going to see something like this is actually just in five chapters, Exodus 29, when Aaron and his sons and then the tribe of Levi are consecrated to be priests for Israel. Do you see what's happening? Israel is being consecrated, even ordained to be priests to the world. And then the people of Levi are being ordained, consecrated to be priests to Israel. Israel, we have the same elements of sacrifice, blood splashing on the water, blood flicked on Aaron and his sons. They put blood on his, their right earlobes, their right thumbs, and their right big toes. You think I'm making that up? It's, <laughs> it's what they do. Chris Wright, in his commentary on this passage, summarizes what's happening, and I think he just, he says it beautifully. The sprinkling of the sacrificial blood on the people would be a sign then not only of the effective cleansing and atoning power of the sacrifice on their behalf, but also of their ordination. Israel as a whole people 
is being consecrated and commissioned for the role that God had proclaimed as his intention for them in 19, 5 and 6. Namely, to be his royal priesthood in the midst of all the nations of the whole earth. That was to be their mission. This is the moment that initiates them into it. God is making for himself a people through sacrifice, worship, and through the sprinkling of blood on these people. And then in verses 9 through 11, kind of the conclusion of this ceremony is the people eat with God on a mountain. The elders specifically eat with God on a mountain. I just want to stop here and ask, do you kind of see where this is going for us? Verse 9, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up just as God said, and they saw the God of Israel. This initially seems problematic because you can't, a human can't see God as he is and, and may be living still. However, the text kind of a little bit playfully goes on, under his feet, <laughs> under his feet, they see God. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. Whether they were unable or, or just unwilling to actually raise their eyes all the way up to God, they, they see under his feet and it's majestic, it's beautiful. This is a clear blue gemstone that was used in the ancient world to signify the place where the gods were. God did not raise his hand, verse 11, against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate, and they drank. The Hebrew language is sometimes just beautifully basic. They saw, they ate, and they drank. Feasting with God on a mountain is going to become an enormous theme for the people of Israel, not just an enormous theme, but a prophetic word, not just a prophetic word, but a desperate hope and longing to feast again with God on a mountain. Isaiah prophesies in this way, on this mountain, Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples. On this mountain, Mount Zion, which is in Jerusalem, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, and he will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Feasting with God on a mountain, not just 70 elders, but the nations of the earth coming to God's table to eat. Some of us now are, are maybe triggered back to all the way, all the way down to Revelation 19 when we see the marriage feast of the Lamb. But before we get there, there's another mountain. There's another meal. There's another table. Many years after the elders feast with God on this mountain, there will be a young street preaching teacher, rabbi, prophet, who's the savior of the world, who is God incarnate. And with his disciples, he will go up to Jerusalem. He will go up to what we call the upper room. 
And after he has taken the bread and given it to his disciples, he takes the cup and says, this is my blood of the covenant, or this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you hear that? He's ripping straight from Exodus 24, verse 8. I want to just compare these two so you can see it. This is the blood of the covenant, Moses says, as he flicks blood on the people that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. Jesus takes the cup. Come on, we do it every week. We hear it every week. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That last phrase is borrowed from two places, Isaiah 52 and Jeremiah 31. How does God make for himself a people out of us through the new covenant? The new covenant in Jesus Christ, the lamb without blemish who was slain for us. Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the other covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Friends, the way that we become the people of God is through the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, who is our burnt offering. He is our fellowship offering, and his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. His blood has the ability to cleanse us, cleanse our guilty conscience. In fact, if you want to know how this passage, how the book of Exodus and the sacrificial system gets wrapped up into Jesus, read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Again, Chris Wright summarizes what we see, especially in the end of the book of Hebrews. The blood of Jesus releases forgiveness, cleanses our guilty conscience, and seals his role as mediator of the new covenant that brings us not back to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion. On this basis, the writer of Hebrews urges us to have full confidence in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And to enter joyfully and boldly into the presence of God. Not just one man. All God's people. Boldly into the presence of God as forgiven, cleansed, reconciled sinners. We have humble confidence and full assurance because we have sprinkled hearts. This is why Christians sing weird songs about Jesus' blood. (laughs) What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's some that are way weirder than that. (laughs) Some of you know I'm saying them growing up. Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Very odd without this. There's some that are weirder. (laughs) 
Some of you know him. You're chuckling. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Are you washed in the blood? This is how God has made us, his people, through his son, the lamb who was slain for us. Not just this, but God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We have been given the Spirit so that the law is not now written on tablets of stone or rolled up in a scroll. God's law is written on our minds and in our hearts by the Spirit. So not only has Jesus gone before us, cleansed us, washed us, reconciled us to God, but now we as God's people who have received God's Spirit have the ability to hear the voice of God and to walk in His ways, to say everything that the Lord has said, we will do. We just finished a series uh, ago on uh, the work and ministry and the person of the Holy Spirit. We are a charismatic church. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? I really think it's simple, not easy, but pretty simple. And it's the, the most oft re- uh, commands heard in my home. Listen and obey. That's what it means, I think, to walk by the Spirit is to listen to the voice of God and to obey Him. Simple, but not easy. I just want you to notice uh, one more thing as we're coming to the end of, of, of this sermon. And just recap, Exodus 24. The people of Israel are made into God's people, the people of God, through worship sacrifice, through hearing and receiving God's word, and then through coming to the table to feast with him. Does that pattern resonate with you? Does it sound familiar to you, especially those of you who come here week after week after week? Worship, hearing and receiving God's word, and coming to the table. Not only has God formed us to be his people, but he continually reforms us to be more and more like Christ as we come to worship him, as we hear his word read, preached, will we receive it? Will we receive him? And then as we come to the table week after week, not because we're worthy in our own right, but because we are welcome. Amen. Amen.